Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to talk 1957, what Ed Ward calls the miracle year of rock and roll. This is the year when Elvis, Chuck Berry, and Buddy Holly were dominating the charts at the peak of their powers. But it was also a year when many legendary records were released to little acclaim. We'll start with a bunch of crazed hillbilly cats who were playing around Memphis at the same time as Elvis, including a pair of drunken, squabbling brothers who may have invented rockabilly before the king. Or is it just punk rock 20 years ahead of its time? We'll also be defending the Chess Brothers against charges of cultural appropriation and exploitation, and we'll be discussing the larger alliance of Jewish businessmen and black musicians. We'll learn about the man who inspired Chuck Berry's lyrical magic, the misadventures of Buddy Holly with the major label, and how he finally put it all together with the help of a nerd out in the middle of nowhere. So check out LetItRollPodcast.com to get the Spotify and YouTube playlist we've put together so you can hear the music we're discussing and more. There's too much awesome in this episode to summarize, so lock on those earbuds and let's go. So we're going to start with the chapter on 1957, which you called the Annus Mirabilis, the miracle mm-hmm. year. Well, it was. I mean, you just look at almost any cultural um, product of the United States in 1957, and you see just masterpieces tumbling out of the chute. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about novels or jazz or... or um, I assume that there were some uh, movies, too, in that year, it's something I know nothing about. Broadway was certainly humming along, and rock and roll produced, it overproduced great records to the uh, extent that there were dozens that never charted, even locally, which is almost incomprehensible. But one that charted huge was Elvis Presley's All Shook Up, number one record of the year, written by Otis Blackwell, recorded at RCA. Does rock and roll get better than that? Oh, it it equals it anyway. I, I don't I mean, it all depends on what you hear. When I heard that record, I, I was appalled, but then I was eight years old. You are appalled by All Shook Up. Well, I was appalled by Elvis's voice. 
He was groaning, and, and it wasn't something that I was, it was stylized. It wasn't what I thought of as singing. Was it the first time you'd heard Elvis? Um, I think, actually, Heartbreak Hotel uh, may have been the record that I re reacted so viscerally to because it was so slow. I was expecting something peppier. And in fact, some of the other records I'd listened to that afternoon were peppier. And, uh, you know, when I think of rock and roll, uh, back then when I, I, I hadn't really heard any of it, but I, was, I, I saw images of teenagers dancing and they were dancing fast. And this was certainly not fast. But All Shook Up is fast. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and one thing I've enjoyed about the book, like this is a topic that has been covered and covered, and you've covered it before, but I felt like you brought a lot of freshness to it. And for me, it's a great source of playlists. And, and there's playlists accompanying the show on YouTube and Spotify and Google Play. And there's just so many nuggets in here. And once, and like you said uh, in the afterword of the intro, you know, once people start finding little hidden gems you didn't mention, you feel like your work is done. Yeah, and the way to do that is is to expose the broad landscape of the story with, without relying too much on great man kind of history. Um, by showing, I mean, you, you can't ignore Elvis, but you can't ignore the fact that there was a lot going on around him at that time and, and uh, give some of that equal weight so that when people start searching for it, they find other things in, in the neighborhood, as it were. I was about to segue into a Memphis contemporary of Elvis's, Johnny Burnett, who was a little bit older than Elvis, had yeah. been playing around Memphis before Elvis. And maybe invented rockabilly before Elvis. But it wasn't but, recorded. You know, it wasn't recorded, and he was doing this in clubs. And I've always wondered about this, and uh, nobody... You know, the, the kind of people who have pursued this area of rock and roll history aren't interested in the social thing. They're interested in, you know, records and matrix numbers and who was on this record. But, you know, the idea of, you know, what was a gig like for you guys in the rock and roll trio in 1952, 1954? You know, I'd, I'd be real curious to know that. And people that know are dying by the day. So. They're almost all gone. Yeah, so it's getting harder and harder to figure out. But we do have the record from 1957, Train Kept to Rollin', a cover of the Tiny Bradshaw, Jump Blues. Right, that was that was a big band record. And these guys heard it and went, oh, well, we can do that. And they did it. Yeah, with a little three-piece. And what's the guitarist? Because the dude is a genius. Paul Burleson. And he opened Burleson Electric, which was a an electric company you know come and fix the wiring in your house maybe sell you some equipment and you know he everybody in memphis knew it was paul burleson finally some english guys showed up and went you know are you paul burleson who played the guitar he, oh yeah and uh, he came out of retirement uh he obviously didn't drink as much as as the burnett brothers and uh, so he was in pretty good health and and he hit the rockabilly revival circuit for a long time that's really cool. And yeah. it's fitting that he worked in elect electric and he was an electrician because dude may have recorded the first guitar feedback ever laid down. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, he he knew what he was doing with that, but I mean the Burnett's were so famous for hating each other that I forget who it was, somebody out on a package tour with them. He's waiting in the lobby of his hotel and and um, the uh, elevator opens and the Burnett's are on the floor beating the crap out of each other. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, it's the lobby. It sounds like uh, Ray and Dave Davis, just a yeah. little bit ahead of, ahead of their time. Ed- I think a lot of, of brother acts were like that. I think the I know the Everly brothers were. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get to the Everly soon. And and the Burnett trio, Train Kept a Rollin', if you define the importance of music by their influence, this is an enormously influential cover by the Yardbirds, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith. And also, it's sort of punk. It doesn't really go anywhere harmonically. It's mostly, you know, that riff that, that's supposed to be the train. And, and I can, you know, as a big band uh, record, it works okay. But with nothing but a couple of guitars, it's it's really striking. Yeah, it really kills. It really kills. And then, but that wasn't the only uh, non-hit record that you run through. Sun Records had a, a whole clutch with uh, uh, Billy Riley and Flying Saucer Rock and Roll, which yeah. is a, you know, if you see a dude with a hillbilly haircut and a tattoo, you know he knows that record at this point. It's right. Not, I mean, this, but at the time, it didn't do anything on the charts. Well, you know, it, Billy Lee Riley was a weird guy, and um, he, uh, when he made that record, he uh, had the, uh, his, he called his band the Little Green Men, and, you know, they wore green suits, and, Hillbilly, not as acceptable as Elvis, and Elvis was not acceptable, really. But these guys were, no, no, we do have standards. Yeah, and they and they didn't have the kind of explosion of charisma and momentum that Elvis and had. And they, they didn't have a deep catalog. I mean, Billy Lee Riley wound up writing and recording some amazing stuff. I have a record of his from, I don't know, the 60s or 70s called Sun Going Down on Memphis that's really beautiful. Um, but he he just never got the momentum and he never took off. Yeah, and it, and it, it's one thing, you know, when you start out as a music fan, you tend to think that it's a meritocracy based on talent. But as you look into how it actually works, it's a meritocracy maybe based on talent plus work ethic, plus luck, opportunities, Absolutely. and timing. Yeah. And, and so something like that. And then you also had Sonny Burgess. Uh, Burgess. You know, Burgess. Oh, he was cre- completely crazy. Yeah. His his band dyed their their hair orange. You know, it's you're not going to get mainstream success in 1957 with orange hair. You're just not. Sorry. Yeah, and I think allmusic.com describes them as a, a a band of crazed hillbillies doing hard R&B that was just way too much for anybody at the time. Yeah, I, it's it's wonderful to discover it now. Because we've had the Sex Pistols, you know, and we've had the Stooges, but God, I can't imagine what it would have been like stumbling on those people back then. Yeah, it's uh, uh, this explosion of culture coming out of the Appalachian belt of the United States must have been just a complete cultural shock. I I don't think it was as much the Appalachian as, as it was further south, Alabama and Mississippi. And these guys are from Arkansas, I think. And, and uh, there's another, you know, hotbed of weirdness. Yeah, and it, and it exploded in some beautiful music. Another clutch of those records were coming out of Chess Records in Chicago, which is one of your classic r- record labels run by a pair of Jewish brothers that tended to sign almost exclusively African-American artists, including the great Muddy Waters, who's... And I didn't... I was astounded to realize that Got My Mojo Working was not a hit for Muddy. No. Uh, it was a it was a hit for Ann. What was her name? Ann Cole, I think. Ann Cole, right? Which um, is a good record. That yeah, I never yeah, it, it is. But but it's it's 
not quite up to muddy standards, but basically this was a, a problem that you had back then when people didn't write much of their own material. Somebody would put out a good song and somebody else would record it immediately or just by luck, you know, I mean, Muddy might have heard her in a club or she might have heard Muddy in a club playing this song and simultaneously both artists decided to record it. Yeah, the race to the studio and race to the marketplace. Yeah. The, the thing about the Chess Brothers was that they had a really good idea, which was stick with what you know. And, and they came up running, uh, working in their dad's liquor store. And then they expanded into a nightclub, which was next door, the Mocambo, and, and heard all this stuff and noticed that the patrons of the club really ate up all this stuff, and yet none of the artists who performed there had a record out. And they thought, well, we could probably make a little bit of money on the side by doing this. And eventually they turned into the first really major um record label for black music in Chicago. And the reason they did this was they had all this business experience from running the, the liquor store and the club. Yeah, and, and uh, today they'd be stoned to death for cultural appropriation, but back then people enjoyed the music, they made money, the artists uh, got famous, and, and some of them made a little bit of money, some of them got paid in Cadillacs once in a while. But... I, you know, that really offended me, that movie Cadillac Records, which was supposedly about Sun Records. Um, Sun or Chess? Oh, sorry, Chess, yes. Um, it had real things in it, but I don't like the way that was framed. Um, these guys were providing a service for people who didn't have any chance. You know, you could make a record. They would cheat you, but it wasn't looked on as cheating. This was the way the record business worked. You better believe that, you know, Bing Crosby had better lawyers than um, Muddy Waters did. But I don't see that as exploitation in the cultural context in which it occurred. Yeah, I mean, people today, I don't think have any feel for exactly how racist, even someplace like Chicago. I mean, Chicago as late as 1968, was rejecting Martin Luther King like, you know, a baboon heart being thrown out of an immune system. Things were really racist, and for a pair of Jewish businessmen to invest time and money into promoting African-American music was a right. huge social leap for them. Yeah, well, not so much. They were ghetto merchants. You know, their dad sold liquor to black people. They sold records to black people. Yeah. And that, not only that, it suddenly occurred to them that black people all over the country could buy your records if you plugged into a distribution system. Now, that was not an African-American business either. That was, you, you had to go to the same guy that was selling Bing Crosby records and say, you know, would you be interested in, you know, do you have a guy who works the race market? And, and so, you know, then if they said, yes, we got a really good guy, you know, he, he's able to get hits on people like Louis Jordan, then, okay, let's go with him. Yeah, and, you know? and black entrepreneurs had, there were some black entrepreneurs running record labels. Oh, yeah. But not very many, and they, they controlled the uh, the booking circuit. The Chitlin circuit was mostly booked by black Yes, yes. Um, although the, I think the really big one, T.O.B.A., out of New York was... Um, was mostly Jewish people. 
I'm I'm not certain of that though. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the the Chitlin Circuit. You you're, you may be thinking of Don Roby, who yes, who was Houston. Uh, in Houston. He was really unique. He, as the Chess Brothers came from selling liquor, Roby came from being a gangster. I mean, uh, there, I can't remember who wrote. I, it may have been in in, uh, in the book about uh, the Chitlin Circuit that I read, where some guys walking down the street talking to Roby, and Roby goes, excuse me, crosses the street, rousts this guy, punches him into the sidewalk, and then walks back across the street and says, excuse me, uh, where were we? <laughs> Just taking care of business. Yeah, you you got to do it. You know, I haven't seen this guy in weeks. He owes me a lot of money. And I, I said I would, you know, beat him up if I caught him. I caught him. Yep, and, uh, and that sends a message. But let's get back to the chess records right. thing. You also had uh, Bo Diddley just killing it that year, putting out Hey Bo Diddley and Mona double track. And one thing that strikes me, you know, the Chess Brothers take this music, document it, distribute it, but they had no idea that records like this were going to get as far as places like England. Look, if they could get paid, that was that was fine. You know, if the distributors came through and didn't cheat them, they didn't have to sue them, then that was what they were in business for. Next record, please. Yep, and and somebody like Bo Diddley. One thing that one thing that I noticed reading through this book, and any rock history bio, is how much, how often artists inadvertently stumbled onto rock and roll. Sam Phillips and Elvis didn't come in and think, "Hey, we're going to make this guy a rock and roller." Elvis wanted to be a ballad singer, basically, and they were trying to record some other tracks. And it wasn't until they were goofing around on "That's All Right, Mama," off mic, and Sam heard it, and that was Sam's gift, was that he instantly recognized right. this is what we need to be doing, and yet it happens over and over again, even with Sam and Jerry Lee Lewis, and well, Sam you know, and Carl Perkins. And you're talking about Bo Diddley. I mean, Bo Diddley was a boxer who came to town, and, and I don't know what he was all involved with, but he, he was you know sort of a polymath. He, um, he was able to um, do a whole bunch of stuff as well as be a songwriter and performer. He, um, he wound up playing on a lot of sessions. He wound up um, writing songs for other people. He was a talent scout. I, he brought in a bunch of people. I think he brought the Moonglows into chess. I'm not sure of that. But, you know, it was like, well, this isn't competition. I'm only one guy. So, uh, yeah. But they're writing good songs, and, and they're not like mine. So um, here you go, guys. And and the the connection I'm trying to make with Bo is this was a guy that they didn't have to stumble across his formula. Bo seems to me to have come in fully formed. Oh yeah, he yeah, he knew vision. what he was going to do. Well, he he didn't emphasize his guitar playing, you know, like a like a blues singer would. What what he was good at was taking folk rhymes and and the dozens, which was a a black sort of game where you put down the other guy. Yo mama, basically. Yeah, yeah, you know. Where are you from? South America. What? You're from Mississippi. That's South America. You know, typical uh, Jerome Green, Bo Diddley uh, talk Ban there, yeah. Yeah, banter, but they put it to the Bo Diddley beat. Which had, was irresistible. Yeah, and he had the weird guitar tuning and, and the weird guitar sounds. And, uh, and eventually weird guitars. Yes. Very, the custom-made Gretsch. <laughs> Fur-covered, yeah. square. 
Yeah. And so, and and this is a guy who had big hit 1955 right out of the gate. Got on Ed Sullivan. We'll get into that on another episode. But kind of killed his big time career right there on Ed Sullivan when they asked him to do a song by Tennessee Ernie Ford, 16 Tons, and he did Bo Diddley. And yeah, so, they held up the cue cards. He said, I may have had the lyrics to the 16 Tons, but all I saw was Bo Diddley. Yep. And that was great, but it got him bought, you know, banned from Ed Sullivan for life. And so two years later, he's putting out great stuff like Hey Bo Diddley and Mona. And, you know, they're making money on that. He's He's on the tour. Yeah, you but know, he's not the big star. He's he's not. I don't. I well, I don't think he was big star material. Frankly, yeah. he he had a lot of charisma, but he wasn't Chuck Berry. He wasn't Muddy Waters. You know, he he was he was a weirdo. He was a hulking brute who looked like an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. Exactly. A weird combination. But you bring up Chuck Berry who was a big star and who was getting the hits in 1957 and his song School Day dropped that year. And and to me, Elvis may have been the avatar, the living avatar of rock and roll, but Chuck was the ideologue, the Trotsky to Elvis's Lennon. I mean, Chuck's the one who, who puts together the mythology of rock and roll and right. songs like School Day. Which I think had something to do with the fact that he was not of the culture. You know, um... Elvis was. Uh, he represented what a, a whole bunch of white kids in Memphis were into. They, they, they called themselves cats. And and um, they when Elvis hit, hit, a lot of these people gave interviews and said, well, we're cats. You know, and um, as far as Chuck Berry, he, he was 30 years old in 1957. Yeah, that's old. Yeah, for 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 a, a culture that we always think of as coming from teenagers, and he's singing about teenagers and articulating their lives brilliantly. Right, but he, but that's because he's been there, and he observes what it's like to be a teenager now from a distance, and thinks, okay. Here are the details I want to do. Here's how I, you know, he's thinking like a songwriter. He's, he's, his template for songwriting was Louis Jordan, who had humorous, complicated lyrics in his best moments. You know, beans and cornbread, about beans and cornbread getting into a fight. Yeah. Uh, Which is really, I mean, (laughs) on one level it's stupid, but on the other level you have to go, wow, he made a whole song about that, and I listened to it from one end to the other, and it was fun the whole way through. And that's what Chuck Berry was thinking. You know, I want to do this. I, w- I want to do these narratives that um, provide an, ins- an insight into what teenagers are doing. You know, I'm, I'm sure he wasn't averse to going down to the malt shop and, and watching what was going on, listening to the, the jukebox, watching the kids dance, and thinking, this is material. Yeah. To me, the weird thing is the way he articulated, you know, things like hail, hail, rock and roll. Where does that come from? I mean, it's one thing to be telling vi- these vivid stories and creating these these anecdotes and song, but it's another thing to be archita- uh, 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 articulating an ideology 
of rock music, which really hasn't even been defined. I mean, he's defining it as he Well, plays. the word, words rock and roll had already been put into play, you know, by Alan Freed. And, and, and the, the phrase caught on with its audience to the point where by the time Chuck Berry is saying, hail, hail, rock and roll, there are a lot of DJs um, on, on radio stations all over the country who are using that term. And so Chuck is thinking, okay, it's time to celebrate that this has happened. So Once he's again, jumping in looking front at of it from a distance. Yeah. He's jumping in front of the parade. And and one song in your clutch of songs that didn't hit that year but are great was Buddy Holly's cover of Brown Eyed Handsome Man, a Chuck Berry song. Right. Which is this amazingly subversive political statement. It is. In the in the fifties for as, as I've always told people, I don't think it was just his eyes that were brown. Definitely not. Definitely not. And I wonder whether Buddy caught that or not. I suspect Buddy did. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Buddy is in many uh, respects a, a complete enigma. All right, have you spent much time in the Texas Panhandle? No, I haven't. Yeah. I did, however, go to his grave and meet his brother accidentally. Yeah, he was just up there. Well, the they were visiting the grave. It was. It, I went out there because the newspaper sent me out to do a story on the dedication of the Buddy Holly statue. So I, I went in the day before because the dedication was like at nine in the morning or something. And um, I was with a guy whose grandfather uh, was buried somewhere in that graveyard. And I'd been given a guitar pick by Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top to put on Buddy's grave. So it was a very strange story. Um, I was wandering around the graveyard. My friend was wandering around looking for his grandfather. He, uh, he found him. And so we went back to Buddy's grave to, um, you know, sort of say goodbye. And there were these people standing there. And um, the guy introduced himself as Lawrence Holly, uh, Buddy's brother. And he said, you know, we don't believe that Buddy is down there. We believe his his soul has ascended to heaven. And I said, yeah, well, you know, that that makes sense, you know, because what Buddy did, you know, is, is certainly not in a box in Lubbock. No. And I said, by the way, have you have you seen a, a fluorescent pink guitar pick that I put on the grave about 10 minutes ago? He said, no. Maybe Buddy came and got it. You know, it, yeah. We don't know what happened to the guitar pick. Yeah. The reason I brought up the panhandle angle is because I'm from there, and I'm old enough to have known people who had dealings with Buddy. Mm -hmm. I, uh, my best friend's mom was asked to dance by him when he was playing in a band. She was on the girls' basketball team that had traveled to Lubbock. And she didn't want anything to do with him because he was a musician, bad reputation. Uh, another guy I knew claimed that he saw Buddy Holly uh, win a 55 Chevy, a really new car, in a pink slip race and refused to give the guy the car back. Like the guy throws down his pink slip, we're going to pink slip race, and then tries to Welsh on it. And Buddy wasn't having it. And Buddy drove off in the dude's car. And Buddy's buddy drove off in his car. And that was that. And they were like, well, and I was like, well, you know, did he call the cops? Did he do anything about it? He's like, he didn't jack with Buddy Holly. Right. Like, he was a, a real. Well, he was really driven and really sort of obsessed with making it, which um, it was not always to his credit, um, because his later recordings show him playing ball with some very non rock and roll kind of people, you know, Gordon Jenkins. 
Yeah. Out and, of the arranger for one. And it's a big question where Buddy would have gone had he lived longer, but there's no question what he was doing in 1957 oh, no. with That'll Be the Day. Uh, you know, the guitar's very up front. It's very rocking, although the background singers pop it up a little bit and smooth it up just enough to make it, I mean, very acceptable. This was an enormous hit. Right. And, you know, he had no problem with that. Um, and there's also the, the sort of divide between the Crickets records and the Buddy Holly records, which was due to a really stupid contractual mix-up. Yeah, and and, the, and Buddy's another example of an artist that the record companies did not know what to do with. He's, right. They signed him, Decca signed him, took him out to, was it Nashville? Uh, yeah. To record with Owen Bradley, later famous for Patsy Cline and Brenda Lee. And they had no idea what to do with Buddy, and Buddy couldn't articulate it to him. Right. They thought they had, had gotten a really clean-cut teenage country and western singer. You know, the, the next generation from Ernest Tubb. Only he could sing better. And that's not what they had. And and Buddy Buddy's big mistake was um, Bob, Bob Montgomery, his, his partner... Uh, in the Buddy and Bob act that was what brought him to prominence in Lubbock. Um, the uh, Bob was more country and he was not all that rock and roll. And in fact, he um, eventually made contacts in Nashville sufficient to establish him as, as a major songwriter there. Um, but Buddy and the Crickets was a whole nother thing. And so when, when they performed, that was the more rock and roll stuff. And then I think uh, Buddy Holly uh, records were a little more pop. But back then, it, it was so close that there wasn't that distinction. Also, nobody knew what they were doing, including Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Yeah, and they had to go, you know, he, he washes out of Nashville, spends a couple, you know, over the course of a couple of years, records in 55, 56, nothing happens. He has to go to Clovis, New Mexico, of all places. Well, that was a lot closer than Nashville. Very true. but And, it, you and were... I don't think, you know, even Dallas or Fort Worth, I don't think there were quality recording studios. Norman Petty was a bit of a nerd. He he was really into equipment, just like Sam Phillips. Um, and when a band showed up, it, whether he liked the music or not, he, he was really into, you know, getting a good sound and things that nobody was was really concerned with back then, maybe Atlantic Records because of their jazz background, um, would have uh, done something. They used to list the uh, microphones and uh, and studio consoles and brand of tape on the back of the records, even rhythm and blues records like uh, Ray Charles, but uh, as well as the jazz records, because they were thinking hi-fi, but they were in New York. Yeah, and, and it just goes to show that even rock and roll, which you think of as the least nerdy thing going on in the 50s, depended on nerds to get, oh, yeah. to, to get oh, it yeah. done. And Petty Studio was basically springboarded by two fluke hits that were recorded in that neck of the woods, Buddy Knox's Party Doll and Jimmy Bowen's I'm Sticking With You. Right. That were recorded but, together. Well, and before that, it was made possible by Norman having an organ trio hit of Mood Indigo. <laughs> which, you know, which is, it shows you the kind of freedom that existed in the charts at the time when these tiny companies, not even a company really, just a person printing a record could put it out there and have a hit. Well, no, Mood Indigo was on Columbia. Ah, for Norman Petty. Yeah. Well, that's insane. And you recorded it in Clovis, New Mexico? Yeah. 
and yeah. gets on Columbia and then and, and they his- and he has a hit and he makes a bunch of money and instead of going on tour which really didn't make any sense um he invested it in a studio and you know the the Norman Petty trio never had another hit but Norman Petty uh he, like you say he, he recorded Buddy Knox and and uh, he uh, then recorded Buddy Holly and then more acts yeah and and from Buddy you segue into the Everly Brothers sort of by way of Owen Bradley. Was Bradley involved in recording the, the Everly Brothers or was that... I honestly don't know. I, I think that was all Archie Blyer. Um, I think Bradley was mostly under contract to Decca. So I honestly don't know whether he took outside gigs or not. Yeah. Uh, he he was pretty busy. He, he had Brenda Lee and he had Patsy Cline at the moment. And... Nashville was not starved for recording studios. I mean, RCA nominally had a, a country <clears throat> a country division there, but um, they also had three studios, and it was easy to rent one of them. Yeah, and Chet Atkins was involved with the, the Everly's. Right, well, that was through their dad. Yeah. Who, I, I don't know how many guitar players I've spoken to in Nashville, who just revered Ike Everly. I've never heard a note that he played. I don't think he ever recorded. I don't know that he did. He was really tight with Merle Travis. And and the story of the Everly Brothers reminds me of the story of ACDC in that you had Ike Everly, who had immense talent and worked very hard to make it in music, never did, had some radio shows featuring his sons. But his lesson to his sons was be a singer, not a guitar player. Get out in front be the name, be the star. Right. And they certainly did. Well, you know, the, it wasn't like it was a great risk. Um, brother acts are are a thing you do in country music. You know, tight harmonies. That all goes back to, the, I guess, the late 20s, early 30s, the Bollock Brothers, um, who the Blue uh, records Boys. the Blue Sky Boys. Yeah. And uh, so that, you know, the the Leuven brothers were red hot at the time the Everly brothers came along, but they were a little bit older. And uh, so the Everlys were like, hey, this is something for teenage country audiences. Yeah. But Felice and Boodle Bryant, they, they knew about the rhythm thing because they, they were hungry young songwriters. And, um, you know, they... Uh, <clears throat> trying to remember i went out to their house and uh, spent a whole afternoon talking to them and and they told me about uh, wake up little susie which is i guess not a 1957 record yeah they um that uh, one of the everly brothers was just bored they were trying to get a record made and he strummed that riff on the guitar and budlo just sat up straight and went hang on do that again and he said um I'll have something for you in a couple of days with that. And he went home and, and uh, wrote a song they wrote it. Wake Up and So that was actually the question I was going to ask you, because Bye Bye Love starts with these just cutting uh, acoustic guitar chords. Yeah. but And it's acoustic guitar, which you haven't heard. You, I don't think you'd ever heard acoustic guitar make that kind of a rock and roll statement to that point. I mean, well, was, not, not recorded that much up front, you know. Uh, Sam Phillips always, you know, put the... Elvis played guitar. He didn't play guitar very well, but he did play it more powerfully. And um, but he always tried to make the other guys, you know, put Scotty Moore and his guitar up front, yeah, a lot more because he he'd been recording blues and he had sort of a feeling for electric guitar 
but anybody could play the acoustic guitar. But in, in Nashville, the acoustic guitar was the basic um, tool of business. Yeah, and the Everly Brothers certainly knew how to operate it. And then yeah. the harmonies come in on top of Bye Bye Love, which is a brilliant song by the Bryants, and the and they had the look. I mean, they looked like twin Elvi. Right, the good hair. Yeah. Real good hair. Perfect hair. And somebody like Andrew LeGoldham, the future manager of the Rolling Stones, will go on and on in his memoirs just about the sexual subtext of the Everly Brothers singing to each other and just how beautiful they were. And, and there was a lot going on, and kids loved it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All they had to do was get them on television, and bang, they were made. Yeah. And, and that's one thing that's sort of weird to me about the 50s rock and rollers is you see something like the Everly Brothers in that context, and it doesn't look Southern as much as it looks futuristic. It's, yeah. It's hyper-modern, so it's a really sort of unique period where the South is leading the country culturally. Right. Well, to, uh, in that particular area, but uh, there were other parts of the country doing similar damage to popular culture. Absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of damage, you also had Jerry Lee Lewis around the time, and he's another guy that had to stumble onto his rock and roll direction. The first record he puts out is a cover of uh, Crazy Arms by Ray Price, right. which is more rocking than the Ray Price version. I mean, Jerry Lee can't not be Jerry Lee. Right. But but it's still fundamentally a country record. Right, and, and that's really what he thought he was going to do. he Because he, he had no knowledge of rock and roll as such, but he did have those those evenings at the uh, Black Club in Faraday, Louisiana, where he and his cousins would stand out back and, and listen to all the noise going on inside. I don't think, you know, they ever thought they would do that. Um, and certainly Mickey Gilley and... Um, Jimmy Swagger. Jimmy Swagger didn't at that point. But Jerry Lee, you know, he was... He was restless, and, and somehow that got into him like a virus. He he showed up in Memphis because he'd been thrown out of theological school in Texarkana or someplace, and, and um, he, he'd been, you know, boogieing the hymns in the church service, and <laughs> they they weren't going to stand for that. Yeah, and, and it's clear uh, from the conversation, the infamous recorded conversation with Sam Phillips, where they talk about theology and... Jerry Lee has essentially got an Adventist hardline. If you sin at all, you're out. Right. You're cast out. If you're not completely pure, you're cast out. And Sam Phillips is trying to argue that you can do more than just good deeds with secular music. You can save souls. Right. And and the recordings on the uh, the YouTube playlist that, that'll accompany this show, I highly recommend you listen to it because you read the transcripts and it's one thing, but when you hear it, and both of these guys sound like Southern preachers. Right. The whole thing starts, you know, uh, with him, with Jerry Lee going, H-E-L-L, which is stri straight out of the middle of a uh, Pentecostal service. Yeah, and, and he managed to catch, and Sam captured it, the real rock and roll spirit. I mean, a whole lot of shaking coming on just exploded. Onto the scene. Well, this was Great Balls of Fire. They uh, the, that was the, the, that, that was the thing that, that yeah. Jerry Lee was like, wait a minute, that's that's the fires of hell yeah. I'm singing. The about. conversation, but a whole lot of shaking was the first one that the first time right. they got him doing the rock and roll. And, and that was just because he once again he was bored in the studio. Studio boredom was like such a great creative tool. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam Phillips was shrewd enough and opportunistic enough to catch it and, yeah. and get it on wax. And then once Jerry Lee began appearing. 
uh, on TV and, and and live. The guy was a golden god. I mean, right. I mean, Robert once Plant. again, we got the perfect hair. We, he's he's got really flashy clothes, great fashion sense, a- and um, he couldn't just calmly sit at a piano like Fats Domino. No. He he uh, he just went nuts. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I saw him on television. I was sitting in the living room with my my parents and my mother said if i ever see you treat our piano that way unspoken threat <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean jerry lee could not be contained and ultimately you know when we get to the 1958 we'll talk about his downfall right and ultimately he did become a country artist and a great one yeah a, a really great one yeah a sadder but wiser but even then his scary ways ultimately kind of held him back because the right. guy was just a scary dude yeah Still, well, I guess he isn't anymore. Uh, One would presume not, but he's still out there, and I wouldn't go to his home county and jack with him. I no. Mean. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I, I, it would be his wife I'd be more scared of. Yes, she survived Jerry Lee. She's <laughs> scary. But the, the closest analog to Jerry Lee, in a lot of ways, would be Little Richard, who was right. a little bit ahead of Jerry Lee. He had hits in 56. Yet again, another rock and roller who stumbled into his destiny. Right, by accidentally walking up onto the stage of the Do Drop In while they're having lunch there and singing a dirty song. Yeah, after hours and hours of failed attempts to sing blues. Right, well, not hours and hours. I guess it was, you know, about three hours in the morning there. And then they broke for lunch, and all of a sudden he turned into somebody else. That we now know. And Bumps Blackwell just said, Whoa, this is what we want. Once again, boredom. Yep, and 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 uh, perception and opportunism on the part of the producer. I'm about yeah, bumps. But well, bumps was in big trouble. Uh, he he was uh, he had been exposed as a fraud by uh, telling Art Roop that he uh, had this musical education, and he didn't. Yeah, he just had good ears and and, and a real solid uh, desire to. Not go on unemployment. <laughs> yeah, and so and he was from Seattle, right? And he came yeah. down to L.A. to work yeah. for Special and, and he was going to get married in New Orleans. They were going to record Richard somewhere, maybe Los Angeles, and his touring schedule fell through. And Richard's manager said the only, the next time he'd become available was this given week in New Orleans. And Bumps went. Hooray! That's when my wedding is. I'm going to be in New Orleans anyway. And that is such a fluke because that way they had Earl Palmer, Earl Palmer, the great drummer, right. and the whole New Orleans uh, session mafia there. Right. And and uh, and you know, Little Richard was from basically Macon, Georgia, same as James Brown, th- right. that neck of the woods. And so he was a foreigner to no- to New Orleans. Bumps was a foreigner to New Orleans. I think Richard had played there a lot. Yeah, but he wasn't. Like, he wasn't of the place. Yeah. And the Exciters, his band, they were. I don't know where they were from. I think they were from the upper Midwest, but but I could be wrong about that. But but in 1957, Richard has had the the first hit, followed it up. He, he released Long Tall Sally, the follow up, uh, in 1957, and he's just killing it that year. I mean, oh yeah, Jenny, Jenny, Lucille, just everything he ever wanted. Look at me. That was his whole deal. Yeah, and the band is tight, and and to me, those the Little Richard 1957 records really. Remind me of the MC5 and their second album. Uh, what they really that just it's trebly, it's tight, it's thin, but incredibly powerful. Right. And and just killer rock and roll. But the specter of Jesus is haunting Little Richard too. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and he eventually, I don't know if it was in '57. I think it's '58 when he yeah, saw well, Sputnik. Well, yeah, Sputnik. He saw Sputnik, 
and freaked out and quit rock and roll to go to Bible college. Yeah, through all his rings and into the Sydney Harbor and and, and just the one, but yeah. still it was like yeah. And and the, and the thing with these early rock and rollers is they almost all you know, if you look at the actuarial tables of, of the early rock and rollers, I mean, they get inducted to the army, they go to prison, they die in car crashes, plane crashes, they find Jesus, they have some scandal. I mean, they're taken up one by one, and almost none of them get to develop as artists. We don't see a second act. We don't right. know what Little Richard would have done if he had continued his rock and roll career. Right. We don't know. Well, we do, actually. He made some spectacular recordings in, I guess, about 1967. Yeah. Um we know what he that he did other things, and the same with Jerry Lee. But we don't know what he would have done as a rock star. Continuing, no, no, this, these, these were these were rock, rock and roll um, recordings. Yeah, but ten years later, and, yeah, and, and, and you but know, he hadn't lost the anything. No, no, or or, or even even later. Um, I don't know what you got, but but it's got me. You know, this amazing uh, Don Covey uh, gospel, essentially. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the point I was trying to make though is that he was no longer continuing right. there, to be the king. There were of rock a lot roll. of, but you know, these were disposable people. It was a fad, you know. The, the record industry could not wait to get to the next thing. Yeah, which they thought was going to be Calypso, right, but, or anything. But you know, yeah. this filthy band of Negroes and hillbilly cretins, you know, who were screaming and wailing, and. Um, Somehow, teenagers disagreed with them. Yeah, and they, they were immune to the Calypso boom. Belafonte had the one big hit with Deo. But, but it, so did the Terriers. Yeah. A folk who, who were nothing but, a, you know, your basic uh, Kingston Trio kind of folk group. Yeah, proto, proto Kingston. But one guy coming the other direction from gospel to rock and roll, and again, stumbling with that transition was Sam Cooke. Who yeah. put put out a couple records as Dale Dale Cook, which if you listen to him now, I mean it's Sam Cook singing, so it's yeah. great stuff. I don't think any well I, to begin with, I don't think anybody would have recognized him because nobody <clears throat> uh, listened to gospel music, and certainly you know to hear that you'd have to get up at eight o'clock on Sunday morning uh, in a city with a, a large black population, because that or you know we had those here, we had a guy here in uh, Austin who was famous for his gospel radio show. But the station only had about the same number of watts as a, you know, double-A battery. Yeah. But to Cook, that was a very real thing because he was making his living touring around and playing churches with the Soul Stirrers. Not just churches, auditoriums. Yeah, the, the, these things were called programs. And um, actually, there's a wonderful record called On the Programs by, I think, Think Swan Silvertones, where they imitate a lot of the um, current gospel stars. You know, it's like, go to the program, here's a, who's on the program, and uh, tonight you'll hear the Solsters. You'll hear the gospel QC, the highway QCs. You know, so, it, so they, they did that. And that's what, I, I've been to a number of gospel programs uh, in my life in Oakland. California, and I've seen some of the greatest theater I ever expect to see in my life. Um, th this is almost dead by now. Uh, it's been showbizzed and, and mass choired into uh, 
into obscurity, but um, I can I can really see. Well, you can hear it. The the, the Shrine Auditorium concert. You know, Art Roop got into the business. This is what's really uh, hard to understand about Sam Cooke. Art Roop got into business because growing up as a Jewish kid in Pittsburgh, he loved black gospel, but there wasn't much in Pittsburgh. He went to programs, but all these people were from somewhere else. So what he did was he ran into, he went to Los Angeles because he figured that most of the groups were there. Because they had a huge scene on the Sunset Strip, not the Sunset Strip, but there was a, there was a Black Avenue. Well, in yes, LA. Central Avenue. Yeah, uh, but that you know there was the churches off of Central Avenue and the uh, auditoriums on Central Avenue, and the Shrine was the biggest. That was where and 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 so some radio station or somebody put this thing together. Roop went down and asked to record it, and you can hear it. There's a there is a CD of this which is about seventy two minutes long. It's the whole show, you know, and it's and there is about twenty minutes of that is three songs by the Soulsters with, with Sam, Sam Cook. Wow, and um. I can't remember which song is nearer my God to the some, you know, song you never want to hear again. Yeah, that they just he goes nuts, and you can hear the women exploding uh, yeah. with just like joy and rapture, and maybe other things. <laughs> um, and that's the weird thing about to me. But why? Why was it that this gospel fan told Sam he couldn't do this? Yeah, he didn't want Sam branch out to rock and roll. He was okay with pop. Yeah, you know he'd been recording rhythm and blues alongside gospel for years. Maybe Why he... suddenly was it because the Soulsters were making him more money than any of the other gospel groups? Probably they were, because you know they were they had the time honored thing of a merch table out in the lobby. You go to a program, man, you you're going to see commercialization like you've never seen it before. Because let's face it, that's the gas to get to the next gig. Yeah, yeah, and and so. For whatever reason, Bumps Blackwell comes up again because he was he was the essentially the A and R guy at Specialty Records. Well, he was one of them. He was on his way out. Yeah, and he manages to take Sam Cooke with him to a new record label called Keen, I think. But yeah, Bob Keen's label yeah. in Los Angeles. And in the in the well, Sam Sam just basically walked out of the Soulsters. You know, he, J W Alexander said, "You got to be you. You got to be Sam. You can't be Dale." Yeah. If you want to go for it, go for it. Which is really interesting because J.W. Alexander was a member of another gospel group. But he was a brilliant man. He knew that there was such a thing as show business. He knew that what he was doing was show business. And he had no problem with secularization. I mean, he would later join Sam's label. That, that he uh, he put together and he would um, he would help him develop secular artists. I mean the Womack brothers were a gospel group. Yeah, the Valentinos. But but they were not a successful gospel group. They wanted to see <clears throat> if secularization would work for them. And JW said, Go for it. I'll help you write songs. And he did. Yeah. And and did JW play the guitar for Sam on those first couple records? I'm not sure. I, I'm yeah, not sure. That he, I don't even think of him as a guitarist, but that doesn't mean he wasn't. Yeah, the Goralnik book that I read recently on Sam Cooke talks a lot about the guitar player that 
came along and like Sam Cooke's version of Summertime, which is the B-side to You Send Me, You Send Me being the big breakthrough for Sam Cooke. Uh, Sam was playing a eccentric version of Summertime because he didn't know the Gershwin chords. He, he had learned it by ear and was you know taking out all the ninths and turning it into a three chord song. And the guitar player was like, that's really strange, kid, but I dig what you're doing and, and translated it and helped translate it. And to me, I mean, Sam Cooke is just this enormous towering figure and one of the few unfortunately killed in 1964 but one of the few who's he stumbled to get to pop and r&b i mean it's he called himself a rock and roll singer but you send me is very atypical for rock and roll it's very yeah, smooth he wasn't a rock and roller so much as a proto soul guy yeah and that, that's that's the the next step for excuse me for um for rhythm and blues for black music is to move away from the blues and move towards secularized gospel. Yeah. And which had already started some with the black vocal groups. And Ray Charles, too. And Ray Charles, yeah. the, the great pioneer. Yeah. And then, but Sam, you know, would continue. He, he, he struggles with RCA and pop producers and various things. But by 64, he's got absolute control of his career. Right. And he's got his own record label, SAR, yeah. which is him and JW. Yeah. And he's, I, I don't know, the, the tragedy of Sam Cooke to me just. Is so bottomless because you hear things like shake and and a change is going to come but cook here's bob dylan writes this amazing song with lyrical depth like he'd never flirted with before and shake supposedly was influenced by hearing sly stone's production of a bobby freeman song do the swim yeah which cook's ears just picked up on immediately and incorporates it into shake which you know sets a direction for otis redding and so many soul singers in the 60s meanwhile he's mentoring the womack brothers and advising them. And his brother, his yeah. own brother. And and advising the Wyatt brothers when the Stone Rolling Stones cover their song to be cool with it. And right. and, and he was trying to groom them to be the black long hair guitar band. Right. And but once he was gone that they, they didn't have the vision and it all fell apart. So Yeah, I, and and apparently JW walked away from them, which is kind of sad. But I think Bobby was Bobby was as, as, as one of the wife. younger brothers he was an obnoxious teenager, and I think J.W. just had it with him. And there was also the weird element of, of Bobby Womack and Sam's widow taking right. up as a couple, which was very strange. But we've, we're getting far afield from 1957. Right, right. We're talking about Sam Cooke and the secularization of gospel. Sam Cooke comes out of a group, the Soulsters, which is, what, four vocalists and a guitar player? Probably five. Five. The classic lineup is a quintet. Uh, in fact, the gospel circuit was either around women. Mahalia Jackson. Well, yeah, solo stars, and also people like Dorothy Love Coates and the Gospel Harmonettes. Um, or it was around quintets, which were all male. And uh, I know here in Austin, there were two gospel promoters, and they either put on women, and the other guy put on quintets. Whether there were five people in the quintet or not is a whole other matter. Yeah, and so another quintet that was kicking around that had left gospel, gone totally secular, was the Five Royales. Right. Which, for me, this is a big one of the big discoveries of this book. For me, I was a little familiar with them. I had uh, acquired their complete recordings and listened to it a little bit, but when you put it in the context, and I and I made it in the, put them on a playlist. You know, put all the songs from this 1957 chapter on shuffle. Mm -hmm. Listen to it in the car for a few days. 
And the five royales just consistently started kicking my ass. Right. Yeah, there was some sort of like beam from heaven that that hit them that year. They they were not working with Mickey Baker. I suspect that Loman Pauling, who was their chief songwriter, bass singer, and guitarist, kind of resented working. You know, in the way the guitar players. Um, compete with each other. He kind of resented having to work with Mickey Baker because Mickey Baker was the number one on-call rhythm and blues studio guitarist in New York. Yeah, when Ahmet Edergen booked the set for Atlantic Records, he called King Curtis on saxophone, Mickey Baker on guitar. I mean, right. you know, and, and Baker has a, an incredible style. And made a ton of money selling guitar instruction books after he moved to France. <laughs> That's cool. But Pauline was also a brilliant guitar player right. with a really vicious, biting, reverb-heavy sound. Which you don't hear on on the sessions before they recorded in Cincinnati, which was not, uh, where, where Mickey Baker was not available. Yeah, they had to move out of the Mickey Baker zone. Yeah, you know, possibly they weren't going to spend as much money on them because they were without a hit. Yeah, they had some hits in the early 50s and then and then struggled. Yeah, once they got to King, nothing nothing really happened for them for a long time. Yeah, and King is the Sid Nathan's record label coming out of Cincinnati, which is, we'll talk about King Records in future episodes a whole lot because this was a classic Jewish entrepreneur who put out Hillbilly Records and Race Records and to make extra money, loved to make his Hillbilly artists do songs by his R&B artists because he owned the copyright, and vice versa. Right. And so it's a completely business-motivated cross-pollination um, and, and a big part of the birth and rock and roll. And with the five royales, and also there's a there's an aspect of the blind idiot God to Sid Nathan. He just wants, let's get this out there and make some money. Right. And other than trying to stop James Brown from putting out please, 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 he uh, he, he didn't interfere too much. Well, with he, he, had, he had uh, the radio to guide him. In Cincinnati, there, there was a really great country station, and there was also a really great rhythm and blues station. So he knew what people were listening to, and he tried to... I mean, at this point, he, he was not doing as well because his company had been built on jump blues. You know, Wynoni Harris, Roy Brown, really, really... Um, huge hits from artists based elsewhere. And um, he bought the Five Royales contract because they'd been working with some guy who then got a job at King. And I was just like, sure, I'll take them. Yeah. And but then, he didn't really know what to do with them. No, and they didn't click and and, and Think comes out and, and hits for them on the R&B charts. But the big song of that era for them, or the most influential, was dedicated to the one I love, which is not at all what you think of. I mean, the Five Royals are this powerful male harmony group with this vicious, biting guitar. And they do this song that goes on to become a Mamas and the Papas staple. Right. And and it's... Or even the Shirelles. And the Shirelles it, version as well. Yeah, but it's just... It's not a girly record in its original, you know, yeah. idea. And, and you can... See why it, it's very different from what made dedicated to the one I love a hit for the girl groups and for Mama Cass. So it's it's weird to me to think what under what context would that record have been a hit? You know, like what kept the Five Royals from being a consistent hit? At? I I don't think that that was that was a record that had hit 
written all over it at that point. It was just a good song that somebody would rediscover. And rearrange. Yeah, and rearrange. Um, Far more interesting to me are records like Think, which you hear, you know, James Brown do it. You hear Aretha Franklin do it. But you don't hear that weird angular guitar uh, part that Pauling put on it. Yeah, and he, he later goes on to, to flirt with feedback and uh, uh, what's what's the song? Say it. Yeah, say it. And, where, where, and, yeah, where, where the, the last note is just like going nuts. I always wanted to play that for Stevie Ray Vaughan. I thought he would be uh, really fascinated with it. I, I bet he would have, but a lot of guitar players were listening to this stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, they were listening to it, but they didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, Steve Cropper, uh, who later was part record. of the Stax Records uh, house band and Booker T and the MGs, he um, he was like, you know, 15 years old, went to some package R&B show and saw them do the uh, song that came out as The Slummer, The Slum, although if you listen to it, they're pretty obviously singing The Stompity Stomp. But that was their big show number. They would, you know, look at, see how long they had in the set. And if they needed to get the audience worked up, then they would go into this. And Pauling, you know, he, he had a really low strap on his guitar and he had a lot of these slinky moves that uh, Chuck Berry later appropriated. And um, so uh, Steve Cropper goes to this gig and sees this phenomenal guitar playing, playing these licks. He says, I went home, I took off my belt, and I added it to my guitar strap so I could look like that when I played guitar. Yeah, and that is a, <laughs> a classic example of the torch being passed. So yeah. even, even if the Five Royals didn't have big hits, Steve Cropper did, yeah, and and it gets out into the culture in a big way. Another guitar player that's sort of working under the surface was James Burton, who was played on Dale Hawkins' hit "Susie Q," which is just one of the great 1957 rock and roll guitar right. records. Yeah, and and uh, where was he from again? He's from Texas somewhere. I believe I he was from <clears throat> Texas, but he, we worked in L.A. Uh, right, he becomes famous. We'll we'll segue to his work for Ricky Nelson. Right, but he, of, he was on, I think he was on the Louisiana Hayride for a while. Yeah, with, with Dale, uh, when he was working with Dale Hawkins. And, and right. And I, I don't know how that wound up on chess, because the Chess Brothers were really not trying to record white rock and roll. They knew that they were out of their element there. Um, it may have been the guitar figure, and they went, well, this, you know, this guy's a one-hit wonder, but um, that's a really good guitar part. Yeah, and they got the record out, and they got it over. It was a yeah. big hit. And, and they did a long version, too. I mean, that that was uh, four or five minutes long, which you just never did back in those days. Yeah, and so Byrne gives us an opportunity to segue into another big cultural earthquake that's going on, which is television, right. which has, has rocketed to become the dominant medium in a very short period of time. Uh, by the by, 1957, and so you get things like American Bandstand, which becomes a nationalized show with Dick Clark. But he wasn't the first guy to try to do that. I mean, that was rightfully Alan Freed's. Right, place. Alan Freed had had a TV show, but you know, to be on TV back in those days, you pretty much had to sign with a network, and networks were really conservative. Yeah, you know, a lot of them had their own record labels too. 
Uh, and like, you know, only a couple years before Nat King Cole, it had an enormously popular variety show, but it literally could not get sponsors for one of the top five or six shows in the in the country. Sponsors did not want to touch an African-American performer. So when Alan Freed, being Alan Freed, loosey-goosey rock and roll guy that he was, lets interracial dancing happen on the show. Right. Frankie Lyman dances with a white girl and boom, show's over and Dick Clark moves in. Not going to have mix-ups like that on the Dick Clark show. No, they got the, the the studio audience was all Philadelphia white teenagers, and and if there was a black act on the band, they did not get down and mingle. Well, they didn't do anything, man. They they stood there and they lip-synced their records. Yep, that was what you had to do to get on the show. He wasn't going to even take a chance on any spontaneous um, music or uh, performance. Yeah, and it but it did the job insofar as it reached a mad audi- mass audience. It became a national institution. Well, it became for it became a huge hit in Philadelphia on the um, because you, if you were doing network stuff, you didn't have twenty four hours a day. Well, you didn't have twenty four hours a day. Period. But you didn't have all your programming done through the network. You, your evening shows, starting with the six o'clock news, they were. Um, from the network but you had the whole rest of the day to fill and Dick had this very smart idea of going on at 4 o'clock in the afternoon which everybody was home from school if they'd gone down to the malt shop and done their Chuck Berry you know rolling the drop the nickel into the slot slot, um, they, they were through with that now it's time to come home do homework have dinner with your parents. But at 4 o'clock, you, you might want to leave the malt shop earlier because, you know, Frankie Lyman, um, Jerry Lee Lewis, somebody like that was going to be on bandstand. Or because you never knew who was going to be on bandstand and you wanted to see. Also, it wasn't just about the musical performers. It was about the dancers. The Philadelphia kids had their own dance culture you know this came up some years later with the the bristol stomp the kids in bristol are sharp as a pistol when they do the bristol stomp bristol is a suburb of philadelphia and and these kind of things you know the stroll that a lot of these kids were hip enough to go to black shows and watch how people were dancing so the stroll was definitely a um, a black dance and they did other other dances like that. And so you, if you wanted to be, you know, a sharp kid at school, you know, when you went to the school dance, you, you'd learn how to do these dances. It, it reminds me of uh, the, the, the mix of Italian-Americans and African-American culture blending. It reminds me of 70s disco with Saturday Night Fever and the whole right. John Travolta thing. Well, and, and yeah, a lot of the... I mean, you know, Dion and the Belmonts. Yes, yes, doing uh, a big... But he's not a 1957. The other big development culturally that impacted the rock and roll business was the invention. And the, this is an odd thing to describe as an invention, but Top 40 Radio was invented by a guy named Todd uh, Stortz. Right. The, yeah, that was the afternoon he spent drinking with a friend of his in a bar and noticed that the same records kept coming up on the jukebox, which had many more records on it. And... Eventually, and then when the big crowds uh, went out, you know, left, the waitresses played the same tunes. And that caught with his With their own money. And, and he thought, now wait a minute, how many 
how many um, tunes are we talking about? And he eventually tracked it that there were 40, you know, the, some that were played just relentlessly and some that were played not all that often. But then there were ones that weren't played at all. So the idea that 40 seemed to be an optimum number and you could you could concentrate on the top 10. And so he worked out all this mathematical stuff about how much exposure any given record would get. And I've I've bought records and I've actually um, been around radio stations where there were little uh, colored dots. Uh, you know, you could buy peel off little dots that were put on the records and some of them would go from yellow to red, which meant this is, you know, Don't this week, th this is taking off. Yeah. And um, that was that was a big thing because Stortz didn't think locally. He, he tried it out locally, naturally. But he also made sure that he got a consulting business together and consulted nationwide. So you've got uh, Dick Clark nationwide when ABC picked it up on their network feed. Um, and then you had uh, Top, 40 radio. Top 40 radio, which was also nationwide. So rock and roll, like it or not, was becoming a national thing and it was becoming less regional. Yeah. Although that took a long time to die. But um, because there were still, I mean, the Five Royales is a perfect example. They were, to the extent that they were big, to the extent that they were getting played on the radio, it was exclusively in the South. But I remember when I, you know, took my job at Rolling Stone talking to people from other parts of the country. I mean, John Lombardi, he was from Philadelphia, which is like right next door to New York. And he knew all this stuff that I'd never heard of. I had another friend who was from um, San Bernardino. And he was almost exclusively stuff I'd never heard of. Yeah. And then you had people in South Texas, people in Chicago. I mean, it's this right. chunky Minneapolis. Stew. There was stuff happening. Who knew? Yeah. And I mean, and that continues into the 80s with Prince and the replacements. I mean, Minneapolis. Right. Things. To me, the most unique city and regional scene in the 50s is New Orleans, which has always been in America. I mean, the birthplace of jazz, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Very culturally unique city. But in 1957, they are just killing. You've got Fats Domino as sort of the arch the leader of the New well, Orleans Well, he's wave. the godfather. He's yeah. been making hits since 51. Yeah, working in part tight partnership with Dave Bartholomew. It's rock. I mean, it's Fats Domino. It's not really rock and roll the way Jerry Lee Lewis is. Right. It's it's these rolling triplets, and Fats Domino is just such a lovable guy. He is not at all the... Not a threat. Yeah. He may be colored, but he's not a threat. Yeah, and he's charming and lovable, and in 57, he's hitting, you know, with Blue Monday, and I'm Walking, which this TV star kid, Ricky Nelson, hears and covers... And his dad, Ozzie Nelson, is a former band leader and is immediately hip to the potential. His, his mother is, is a former singer in the band. And, and and Ricky's young and beautiful and talented. He does a credible cover of I'm Walking. It's a hit on the TV show, which means it's a hit on the radio. And it's a, it, once again, it's a network show. Yeah, it takes it national. He partners with James Burton. I don't know that James Burton played on I'm Walking, but he's definitely... No, and that was Barney Kessel. Yeah, the who, great who jazz the, guitar the guy who... Uh, who uh, Ozzy cashed in a favor with, you know, because he was recording for Verve, which was a uh, mostly a jazz label. Yeah. And, and he said, you know, my kid wants to make a record. And then Verve 
goes nuts. Um, and Imperial Records, which is um, Fats Domino's label, here's a white kid with national exposure singing a Fats Domino song. And so, bang, they grab him. Yeah. And, and and when he brings in James Burton and forms his own band... Yeah, that's what he had to do. He, yeah. he had to do... He, you know, he couldn't use Barney Kessel no. every week because, well, that would be was a little busy. expensive. Yeah, yeah. And Kessel around that time, I think, was giving private lessons to a young Phil Spector. Yeah. He was discovering he was never going to be a great jazz guitar player and go on to do other things. But uh, Burton, James Burton, I always want to call him Richard Burton, but James Burton goes on, you know, to be Elvis's guitar player and so on. But he and, and Ricky Nelson put together a really... A Rock and Roll Hall of Fame caliber catalog. Right, right. And I don't know who the other guys in the band were, but um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if once I found out, they would be other people that did other you know, things that I, I could recognize from other sessions. Yeah, and so, but but back to Nola a little bit. I mean, we talked about Fats, uh, but but they also had a, a big record coming out of New Orleans that year was the Rock and Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Few, but Flew by Yui Piano. Huey Piano Smith and yeah, the Clowns. Yeah, and the Clowns. Although it was Bobby Marchand who really who was the song. was the star there. Um, yeah, I mean Huey, Huey was like a journeyman um, guitar player around town, and he was um, yeah he he was supposed to play on the Little Richard session. That, that first but Richard bumped him aside once Richard sees Well, he, he was, I think he, he recorded on the morning session. Anyway, oh man, this isn't going anywhere. I mean, everybody was ready to give up. But uh, he did have his own band. And um, he, um, and Marchand and, and some woman, I can't remember, this giant woman was also in the group. But they were called Huey Piano Smith and the Clowns for a good reason, because they acted up on stage and they were a really popular live act yeah um partially because of marchand who later transitioned to a woman huh some intersectionality there and marchand has a record that you list in, in your first <coughs> clutch of records that didn't make it big uh, uh chicky wawa which is a really you can find it on youtube but it's not on spotify it's not on google play i don't know that it's in print anywhere chicky wawa was was a street song it, it was one of the indian songs from mardi gras yeah, and that and it reminds me of stuff uh, Lee Dorsey would later do, you know, sit in my uh, once again. Yeah. But that that was the next generation. Yeah, the the '50s generation was not so much about building careers because not that many careers were formed at that time. There was no local record label that was doing anything, and only one studio, and w the one studio, which was a great studio run by a guy with great ears and great brains. Um, uh, Cosmo Matassa, you know, he he was the man. And everybody went there because I don't know if they believed there was something on the walls that could make them inspired. But, you know, I, I don't think anybody would open another studio. Well, for one thing, there wasn't a record company that would be constantly feeding them artists. Yeah. You know, everybody had to make a deal. And Imperial put out some of those records. Specialty. Specialty used the studio. Ace Records, which was actually in Jackson, Mississippi, um, they put out Huey Piano Smith and the Clowns. Yeah, and, and, and some great stuff. And another guy who was sort of a bridge to the next generation, Larry Williams, comes along. Right. And, you know, he hits with Bonnie Maroney and a couple of others. But to me, he sort of takes a mantle from Little Richard, or is trying to. Oh, yeah. And, and 
Short Fat Fanny is the weirdest, most meta song. I mean, it's basically a shout out to every rock and roll hit of the past three right. years. Right, and it's it's also a with its title, it's an imitation Little Richard song. Yeah, I bet I can make a hit by imitating Richard. Yeah, Long Tall Sally, Short Fat Fanny. But I mean, he throws in Slipping and a Sliding, Blue Monday. I mean, he references about fifteen songs in a three verse. Well, that that was that was a, a fad at the time. You know, you, you know, you could always slip in a reference to somebody else's record as a slyway. And the other thing you could do is, you know, slip in a bunch of the names of towns. And and so you'd get airplay yeah. in those towns. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there was the Flying Saucer records, break-in that, records that, that had basically s- early few sampling. seconds of everybody's hit with this goofy narrative. Yeah. And they became huge. Yeah, and they, and they had to establish the legal precedent to do that. And it was established that you could, for parody purposes, right. basically sample other people's records yeah. in the context of your record. But a couple of shrewd operators that we haven't talked about yet, Lieber and Stoller. These young songwriters from the East by way of Los Angeles who then come back to New York and are working with Atlantic Records. And and, and I want to ping you one record that you didn't include in this chapter. You mentioned the artist, Ruth Brown. Oh, yeah. But you don't talk about Lucky Lips, which is a Libra and Stoller song. Is it? And, uh, and it's the weirdest song. I mean, it's, you know, she's singing about Lucky Lips. And it's in 2017, you hear this and you're like, reading it as a sexual double entendre you know <laughs> and and given the history of r&b there are so many dirty songs right you know, and churn my churn until the butter comes and went on here and stuff like that and ladies like ruth brown certainly did a number of dirty songs but to me this ruth brown 1957 doing libra libra and stoller one of her biggest pop hits of her career for atlantic records um talk about ruth brown for a little bit i mean well, she was actually on her way out at that point she had helped found uh, Atlantic Records as a as a pop label. I mean, she she um, she was discovered at the Flame Bar in uh, Detroit. Uh, her manager was Lionel Hampton's wife, and uh, she sold uh, Ruth to Ahmed Erdogan and Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. So they were go- heading to New York to uh, record and had a terrible car accident, which Ruth got the worst of. She was in the hospital for about a year. Yikes. And uh, so she didn't start recording until later. But once again, Atlantic assembled the usual crew of, you know, jazz musicians and and virtuosi to to, uh, back her up. And she had numerous hits right from the start, which were often stymied by cover versions by white artists. That's the quality of the material she was recording was that white artists could grab the songs and make big hits out of them. Yeah. And and, and so she, she did have a lot of pop hits after a while as the, as the radio opened up to including more black artists. Um, but... I don't know. I think she kind of got lost in the shuffle after a while. And um, that's why they gave her to Lieber and Stoller to uh, record a record. Yeah, and Lieber and Stoller read hot. I also want to mention Laverne Baker real quickly because I think of her. She was on Atlantic as well. I think of her when I was Cornshuk. She yeah. started on, on chess. Yeah, and, and but her big hit in 57 was Jim Dandy. Right. Which is a, a huge, a huge, great song, big hit. 
What's the difference between Laverne Baker and Ruth Brown? I mean, how do you separate them in your head? What's... I don't. I always get them confused. <laughs> <laughs> they were very similar artists. I mean, you know, I, I, I suspect Atlantic went, well, this worked with her, so let's get little Miss Cornshucks in here and see what she can do. Yeah, I'd love to know the dynamic personally between the two of them. Too, yeah, I don't they think were. they uh, exactly spent a lot of time together. Yeah, I would <laughs> imagine it'd be like the Siamese fighting fish, keep them in separate tanks. But Lieber and Stoller were probably at their peak around this time. They're starting to work with the coasters. They'd worked with them as the Robins in L.A., right, in Cell Block 9 and stuff like that. But in 57, they do Searchin' and Youngblood with the coasters. And these are these incredible playlets. I mean, these are little mini-dramas. Yeah, yeah. They they, they got that that kind of shtick together and were able to, to do it. They, they, what they did was they consciously crafted a safe black vocal group aimed at teenagers, Charlie Brown. Who doesn't know that story from being in high school, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was a guy who was very recognizable. But they oh, they were also working with Elvis. Yeah, we're about to, I was about to segue to that because they get to write the theme song for Jailhouse, or the title song for Jailhouse Rock, right. one of Elvis's big movies. The, record, the movie version of that song is a rock video. It and is. That is. It is one of the great rock videos. And Elvis loved their material, loved working with them, was getting to know them and liked them. And Colonel Tom Parker put a big kibosh on that. Right. He he completely squelched that because he, well, because he couldn't bring in Hill and Range music, which he had a deal with to record as many of their songs as possible. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't even know if that was the thing because, you know, it was either Lieber or Stoller. One of them tried to go around it the right way. He got a meeting with Hill and Range and Parker and said, I've got Elia Kazan to direct, I've got the screenwriter from All Along the Waterfront, and, and Mike and I want to write a musical with Elvis that'll be... And, and Colonel Tom kills it. He didn't have enough control. Yeah, and it's to me it's a huge aesthetic tragedy. Like, yeah. just imagine that. But Elvis is a tragedy. I mean, yeah. the whole story is a tragedy. You, you get Peter Garonic's two books, and at the end of the first, everything is at its peak, and then the second volume is just depressing as hell as one thing after another gets blown. Yeah, but he still accomplished great things. I oh, mean, yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. He made many great records. You know, that was how idiot-proof Elvis was. You know, you can hand him a piece of crap and, you know, Do the Clam is a better record than a lot of people were making that year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when he was working with somebody like Palmas and Schumann and material like Little Sister yeah. or Marie's The Name, I mean, he could still kill it well into the mid-60s. But in 1957, he's just killing it, period. Yeah. He hasn't been tamed by the Army. He's getting to work with Lieber, Lieber and Stoller, who are absolutely at the top of their game. And, I mean, like, when well, before we did the show, I was like telling you one of the questions I wanted to ask is, why should anybody care about this stuff in 2017? Is this stuff going to survive and to me like jailhouse rock is going to survive probably yeah i mean you know we we don't know but i don't know the answer to why anybody would want to listen to this stuff now is as i replied to you mozart now you know i'm plenty old but i'm not old enough to have caught him doing one of his piano concertos and improvising uh, in, in the, the parts where you're supposed to improvise. Um, no, you know, and yet there was a point in my life when 
I, as they say, heard Mozart. You know, I, it had come and gone. I, I listened to a lot of classical music at one point, usually in the morning reading the paper and drinking my coffee. And one day, something, and not one of the more famous Mozart compositions, hit my brain. And I went, oh my God, look what he's doing. And then I grabbed all the Mozart I could and started listening to it and seeing how this stuff worked and noticing that some keys produced better compositions than others. E flat. What does that mean? I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, so Mozart is great music that I had no personal contact with it as it was meant to be made, which who knows whether anybody who does Mozart these days is doing it in a way that Mozart would like. Well, nothing we can do about it. Duke Ellington, another example. I did live at the same time as Ellington, but I was really young and I didn't catch on to jazz for many, many years. And when I finally did, um, big band music wasn't what I listened to. But eventually, I did catch the genius of Duke Ellington. Somebody, somewhere, you know, 75 years from now, is going to hear Elvis or, or um, you know, Loman Pauling or Sam Cooke or Ricky Nelson and go, wow, there's something going on there. You know, it's... Rock and roll is no longer the center of teenage life. Music is no longer the center of teenage life. I'm okay with that. I'm not one of these geezers who's going, oh, so much better in my day. Because <laughs> it, it was, you know, not better all the time. And it was different. And that's what I'm trying to get across in this book. What society was like. This is a social history. It's not a great man history. It's not a nerd history. It's not a record collector's history. It is what were people doing and how did this particular sector of popular culture affect them? Yeah. And to, to wrap up this episode, I want to talk about Chuck Berry's big anthem of the year, rock and roll music. Right. Which, you know, we can argue about whether or not School Day is the more perfect encapsulation of the rock and roll experience, but rock and roll music... It's the teenage experience. Yeah. Rock and roll music was a statement that said, it's here, it's going to stay, either get used to it or get out. Yeah, and and it's a brilliant encapsulation of this. And to me, Chuck Berry is just such a sui person. I mean, he's this, this African, upper middle class African American. He's right. what you would call a bougie black guy. Right. Raised by a very prosperous businessman and, and what seems to have been a very solid middle class upbringing and yet by the time he's right out of high school he's in jail for robbery right you know and, and but he gets out gets back on his feet starts playing around St. Louis contemporary with Ike Turner the two of them are band leaders and rivals discovers that he can play country music change the lyrics to Ida Red and people go crazy right you know Maybelline in 1955 and then and then he's just out the gate and and, and that's that's why he got his record contract Muddy Waters heard him and went, well, this isn't competition, but it sure is good. So he tells him to go in and talk to the chess boys. Yeah. And, and and then eventually, you know, he, he writes this song, rock and roll music, that, that says that it is a new day. And everybody hears it and goes, sure is. 
Yep. And Chuck, uh, they're going to get Chuck. I mean, there, there's a man act violation awaiting his future. I think it's what, 60, 61? He yeah. gets busted. And, and, you know, Chuck, who just passed away at age 90, has this long career, but it's not really storied. I mean, it's sad to me that Chuck kind of spent the last 20 years of his life in exile, essentially. He has an attempted Well, comeback. it was also self-exile because oh. he's a, a really incredibly unpleasant person to work with. And his whole shtick of pay me in cash before I go on. I don't want to know who the band is. They all know my tunes. So sometimes yeah. you see Chuck Berry and it's really good and sometimes you see him and it's really terrible. He doesn't care. He's been paid. Good night. Yeah. And and infamously punches Keith Richards in the face right. at one point, and and uh, has these sexual peccadilloes that blow up in his face. You know, gets caught videotaping women going to the restroom at his amusement park. Uh, when when he puts out his autobiography in 1987, uh, there was a big high-powered female publicist who was on the plane with him. He assumes she's there to give him a blowjob, and you know, just self-inflicted career damage, but. If you look at the quality of his work, though, this is a guy who is a peer of Duke Ellington or Bob Dylan or any Ray Charles, sure. any American musician ever. And it's even though it's self-inflicted, it's sad to me that he didn't get lionized and didn't get the victory laps. Yeah. Some of his contemporaries. Well, and he did write a lot of bad songs. Yeah. If you listen to any complete, you know, I've, I've got, I think, his complete chess recordings at home. And, you know, Anthony Boy is not only bad, it's embarrassing. Yeah, and some of the instrumentals are bad. Some yeah. of the blues numbers are bad. You're out of tune, Chuck. Hello? <laughs> that's that's not rocket science. Yeah, so he's a very spotty artist, but if you boil it down to the great 28, oh my God, is this a body of work? And, uh, and you know, to me, he's the Trotsky of rock and roll. I mean, yeah. You know, Elvis is the Lennon and, and Chuck is the Trotsky. And so, all right, so Ed, one of the great things about this book is, 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 of course, you cover the classics and the big stars, but there's a lot of discoveries to be made here. And one of the really fun obscurities is this weird movie called Rocket Baby Rocket. Oh, from, well, yeah. From Dallas in the late <clears throat> 50s. Tell us about this. Well, there was apparently a package tour in town, and um, there was this wrestling promoter who had a stable of wrestlers. And he was really excited about rock and roll and wanted to make some money off of it. Wrestling was out of season, so he thought he would make a rock and roll exploitation movie. And there were a lot of um, not very well-known rockabillies in Dallas, so there was local talent. Roscoe Gordon had blown into town with this, um, this rock and roll review, and... So the guy puts together a movie with a plot of kids have a cool place where they go and dance and the bad guys who are the stable of wrestlers decide they're going to shut it down and use it for something else. And so they organize a big show to raise the money to keep the place and well... That's about all there is to it, really. Yeah, but it's a, it's a really entertaining couple of hours. It's 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 entertaining, and it's also weird because you've never heard of any of these. I mean, Roscoe Gordon is definitely the star. Uh, and who's heard of Roscoe Gordon? Yeah. And, Except a couple of million people in Jamaica. And it's like watching a bunch of kids from the 50s doing Elvis impressions. You know, right. But for real. I mean, oh, yeah. Johnny Carroll. I mean, Johnny Carroll had a, a pretty respectable career. Yeah, and then... 
And then it veers into sort of Plan 9 from Outer Space territory with these terrible actor wrestlers right. who are better actors than the kids in the and the rock and, and, and that girl who shakes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she must have come out of a burlesque house or something. Because yeah, I've never Jack seen Ruby. an act like, yeah, maybe she's a friend of Jack Ruby's. Maybe the uh, the director was a friend of Jack Ruby's. I'm sure they ran into he, each he was, other. He was definitely not a director. I, you won't find anything else listed under his name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and now you talk about a lot of other rock and roll quickies, several of which contributed to killing Bill Haley's career. Uh, but this one was just a real treat, and you can find it on YouTube. This is a movie the whole that's, thing, yeah. that's totally obscure. You can't find it anywhere, and it's on I, YouTube. I have it on a videotape, but I don't think I'll be watching that anytime soon. Yeah, but so it's on the YouTube playlist. Check it out. Enjoy it. Let us know what you think. That's our look at 1957, the miracle year of rock and roll. Be sure and check out our website, letitrollpodcast.com, where you can access the YouTube and Spotify playlists and hear all the music we've been discussing. Next week, join us for a look at 1958, the year the Empire struck back. Elvis got drafted, Little Richard got religion, and Jerry Lee Lewis married his cousin. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.